Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 235th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Georgia Lee Hussey. Georgia is the founder and CEO of Modernist Financial, an RA in Portland, Oregon, that offers deep financial planning services to 46 affluent households for a combination of retainer and AUM fees and a $17,500 minimum fee just to get started. What's unique about Georgia, though, is how she actively seeks to align her own personal values with the values of her advisory firm, the values of the clients that she serves, and the impact that it creates not only for the community she lives in, but the broader financial services industry as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Georgia went through the rigorous process to qualify as a certified B Corporation in order to create a structure that would keep herself and her firm accountable for its decisions and actions. Georgia's conscious capitalism approach that prioritizing having a positive impact and running a business profitably are not, contrary to popular belief, mutually exclusive goals. And why Georgia's clients more often than not view her as not just as someone to whom they can delegate, but as someone who can hold them accountable to be more intentional with their own money and financial decisions. We also talk about Georgia's financial planning process itself, which leverages the money quotient framework across a series of five onboarding meetings. Why Georgia engages in two full-day retreats with each new client, specifically to give them the space and time to discover their goals, envision what they want their lives to look like, and figure out how to align their financial decisions with those goals. How Georgia proactively discusses politics in client meetings as a way to broaden the discussion around how the financial decisions we make can affect the world around us, and as a means of helping her clients gain better clarity around their own relationship with money. And why George's favorite part of the entire planning cycle is in helping your clients actually implement the recommendations, which can take some clients up to three years to complete because of the depth of the firm's advice. And be certain to listen to the end, where Georgia shares her own background as an artist coming into the financial services industry, how her involvement with opening and running community events translated directly into generating new business as a new advisor, how Georgia's first two jobs in the industry helped her figure out the sort of business she wanted to build and prove to herself that clients would pay what she felt her time was worth as an advisor, and how that, although being a CEO of a successful advisory firm can sometimes be lonely, Georgia's found fulfillment and satisfaction by building a community of her own of other entrepreneurs and business leaders with shared experiences. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Georgia Lee Hussey. Welcome, Georgia Lee Hussey, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. I know we had first connected many years ago when you had reached out to me and said, hey, have, have you heard that there's this thing where RIAs are forming B corporations? <laughs> and, you know, being the nerd that I, like the tax nerd that I am, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm familiar with C corps and S corps. How does this work from a tax perspective? And you're like, no, no, no. It means something completely <laughs> different. And then like proceeded to very kindly educate me on, on, certified B corporations and ultimately did a, a wonderful guest post for nerds I view on on B corporations and just you know what it means to build a business that takes all the different stakeholders 
into account. And and I know in the in the years since you've you've grown this a lot further in the context of your own business and and I guess just these ideas of how, how do we align our impact in the world, what we do in the world, values, financial planning, the broader financial services industry. You know, we 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 sit at the intersection of a lot of different stuff in mm. the world these days between mm-hmm. money and values and planning and an industry that doesn't always have the most wholesome values sometimes. <laughs> and I know you're just you're doing a lot of work in the space. You're living it. And so I'm I'm excited to talk about like what does it mean when you start building an advisory firm and really trying to align your advisory firm to your own values and approach and and then putting that back out in the world to clients. Like I, I think we talk about that sometimes, like you know, building values-based firms and doing values-based financial planning. But just my my impression is when when you do this, what you're talking about is very different than what the rest of us are sometimes talking about in building our firms aligned to values. Yeah, I think there's so much room for growth and opportunity in who we can be as business people in this industry, who this industry can, how we can operate in the world, the way we can behave and the kinds of results and, you know, vision and values that we can welcome into our business practices. Because, I mean, as planners, you got to have a vision to be able to know where you're going. And I think that vision can be more audacious, more inclusive, more equitable, while also driving a a strong bottom line and a strong business in and of itself that has the potential to have long-term impact. It's a fun, fun creative project. (laughs) And I, I think it's an interesting dynamic as well that you sort of noted that balance of there's, you know, there there's what we do around impact. And I think at least for some people in the industry, we, we sort of equate like, you know, you can have a highly profitable firm that works with affluent people, or you can mm. you know, serve the masses, but then you may or may not be able to do it profitably or make much of any money at all. I know you draw those lines differently that, you know, you, you take a lot of focus, the impact the firm is having, but you also do work with some fairly affluent clients in and of itself. And so, just help us understand, like how how do you think about the vision of the firm for what you're trying to build? Or as you said, like we get to vision these things how we want. So, how how do you vision the business? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question, and certainly has been iterative over time. And originally, I got into the business because I felt like my creative community was lacking in representation in the financial industry. And this is, you know, 11 years ago now, I realized that nobody had taught us about how to manage money and think about money, which morphed into, oh, maybe I can serve creative professionals after I got my CFP. And then it became, there was this little election you may have heard of in 2016, in which I really rethought and got a lot more serious about my values and my behaviors in the world. And I thought, you know, what I really want to do what is truly a core gut drive for me is to help people take their financial decision-making and put it within their political framework. It's one of the reasons I love Portland, Oregon, right? It's this is where as a city, we are, we are sweetly earnest about the ways in which we make financial and lifestyle decisions around our values. And I feel like the same, the same intention can be applied to the way that we live in the world as financial beings, which has a lot of sort of required structuring around it. And then 
this was in part driven by my desire if I was going to be a business owner, which was not my original intent. But as a business owner, I knew if I was going to operate in the world of capitalism, I had to operate from a more conscious version of capitalism. And so now when I think about where the firm is going, I think about how can we drive systemic shifts in the way we orient ourselves around money through the work we do as a company, as well as the work we do with clients. And, you know, tax policy is a really fun place to to have that conversation as an example. But ultimately, I want to help the industry evolve to be more responsible for its behavior. And I also want to be able to model and have other people model for me ways that we can be more, more responsible in the way that we utilize our wealth, whether that's social capital, creative energy, intellect, actual money, time, et cetera. So help me understand a little bit more of this evolution as it started. You said like you were coming to this as a, from a creative community that didn't have representation in the industry. No one was teaching about money. So like, what what was your background? Because I'm taking like, this was not a, you know, business and econ major who came into <laughs> financial services. No, indeed not. So I went to a very small liberal arts college called Sarah Lawrence College. No grades, no requirements, no math or PE requirement. No, I think I did have a PE requirement and I got it from like walking or something. <laughs> I don't know. So really a, a mind that's trained to critical thinking through the concentrations I chose in installation sculpture and creative writing. And my creative practices, especially my sculpture work, was a lot about understanding what is the meaning of labor and what is how do we define gender and how do those two things connect to each other. And I, at the time, well, when I was practicing, I loved anything that involved fire. So I was a glassblower, I was a welder, wax casting, anything that was alchemical in its nature. And then I also did a lot of creative nonfiction, sort of the Joan Joan Didion style kind of work. So that's my background. I tried for about 10 years to be a professional artist. And at some point I realized that I was not going to make it. The friends I had who were making it were either came from a resourced family and were able to have the support they needed to basically have a job that is not remunerative in American capitalism, (laughs) or they were willing to be so poor that they could still make art. And my own background is such that I didn't come from a lot of financial stability. So in my late 20s, I realized that I really needed financial stability for my own emotional stability. And so that's when I did what many people think is the well, I would say what a strong money story or mythology out there that the most practical and responsible thing you can do is buy a house if you want to make adult decisions. <laughs> and I happened to buy a house in 2006, which if you put that on a timeline along with the mortgage crisis, gives you a little context for what I was experiencing. <laughs> so you bought a house and then you were locked in it. <laughs> exactly. I had two mortgages. My second had an 11.5% arm and I did cool. not know what an arm was. So that financial, I would, you could call it a mistake, but of course, as a highly educated white woman, even though I was you know, an artist by trade, I was able to have a day job that could support that that purchase. But I quickly realized that through the process of making that financial mistake, I learned all the ways in which I knew nothing about money. I didn't know how to budget. I didn't know what investing was. I didn't understand interest rates. I didn't understand compound interest. You know, there was a real dearth of knowledge. And then I started looking around at my friend group and a lot of my community 
were very successful creatives of one kind or another. And I realized they knew nothing. And if anything, there was a driving force of shame around money. And that, of course, produced behaviors, either pushing the money away or spending it all or whatever the the story might be for that that person. And I was like, oh, we're in trouble, y'all. If we want to have a a stable financial community, a stable financial base for our creative community, we've got to get our arms around how to hold, invest, grow money from a place of generosity, but also stewardship. And so that's when I decided to sell the house and pay for my CFP education with the very small proceeds. (laughs) Interesting. And and I'm presuming then that as you had noted there, you know, this dynamic around the creative community that it, it sounds like sort of two options, either you, you, you come from money, at least enough money that this career can sustain at low income or, or you're good with have just having very little money and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and living the starving artist lifestyle and, and very, very few in between. So I'm just imagining in practice that you, you end out with sort of a, a rather polarized two extremes sort of approach to to money and to wealth in that community with not much in between because those are the those are the journeys they live and the kind of the stories that they they're embedded in. Yeah, I think it's the first spectrum of money stories I became conscious of. This idea that if I am one side of the spectrum, if I'm successful, I am a sellout. I've lost my creative integrity. Or on the other side of the spectrum, I have in creative integrity and I am poor and I don't have healthcare and I may not know how I'm going to feed myself in the next week. And there, as you say, there's not a lot of room in between those spaces. So I see that folks that I've known, you know, this is not our focus anymore, creatives, though there's a very, very strong overlap in the Venn diagram between creatives and progressives. But there is this feeling that if somebody inherits money or they get a book deal or record deal, which was what I was watching happen around me, is that they would, people would get rid of the money as quickly as they could. They would either buy a house or they'd spend it all. Because in the creative community, Making money or too much money is associated with selling out and losing your creative integrity. So the only way you restore your integrity is to purge the money. Exactly. Exactly. Of course, totally unconscious. I don't think that is what people would tell you they're doing, but it's what we see again and again. And that is such an that became such an interesting space to work in. And then I started thinking about well, what was I told and what so that I believe that, oh, I'm creative, I'm not good at math even though I'm excellent at math and I was in AP math as in high school, I still had this story. And then I, then I would self-correct myself and I'd be like, oh no, I'm good at math. <laughs> but that was the story I'm supposed to say, or I'm, or I'm not good with money, right? That's um, creatives aren't supposed to be good with money. The black sheep of the family who's an artist is not good with money. And that's like, that is such an intense trope in American culture. It's sort of everywhere you look once you start looking. So you're living in the community and saying like, wait, I am good at math. In fact, I think I actually want to learn more about this money and math stuff and help other people in my community. And and just that's literally what pulled you into the financial services world. Like just that. Yeah. Adopting that mission. I, hey, I got to, 
I got to do something that pays the bills better. So let's try this finance thing. Yeah. Well, at first I was like, maybe there are money coaches. <laughs> and then I, then I found, oh, I was reading at the time, Get Rich Slowly, which was the blog I was reading to figure out how to get myself out of the mess of this mortgage. And I found out that there was this thing called a certified financial planner, <laughs> but I didn't go into the industry first. I actually stayed in my day job, my sales job to fund, complete the funding of my CFP program, which was fascinating because I knew nothing about the financial industry when I was taking my CFP. Didn't know what a bond was, didn't know what a capital gain was. It was completely, my joke is that I was learning ancient Greek at a thousand miles an hour. And so you were doing this essentially uh, as a career changer on the side while still working, well, I was going to say a side hustle, like a secondly, your main hustle because getting your CFP marks was your side hustle. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so... As you decided then that you wanted to make a shift into the industry, how did you actually get going? Like, did you finish the whole CFP program before you started looking for work? Yeah, I did. Well, I took finished the CFP program, took the exam, and barely didn't pass. I mean, like, if I could have just bumped up that barred graph on the insurance section, I would have passed, <laughs> which I was actually quite proud of. Me coming at it completely cold as a you know non-mathy creative person. <laughs> Yeah. And I literally knew, I mean, I just didn't know anything about the structures or history or anything. Found it fascinating. The benefit of that, again, another thing that seems like a negative, but ended up being a very strong positive is I needed to study for it again. So at that point I had a little bit of savings and I ended up quitting my job about two months before I sat for the exam the second time. And I just committed myself to studying eight to 10 hours a day, every day or five days a week in order to be able to pass. And it was, I did not only pass, what the glory of that, that experience was, Michael, that I was able to truly root myself in the conceptual frameworks that all the subject areas of the financial planning process are, are grounded in. And so I think it is really what makes me a good planner is this conceptual rigor that I was able to apply on top of the regurgitation that I was really applying in the first round. And so second exam passes and goes, okay. Mm -hmm. And so then what? Like, then you're like, okay, I've quit my buyer job and I passed my exam. I guess it's time to try to find a job in the industry doing yeah. this stuff. So I did a little hourly planning and my first client is still my client, which I, is really sweet. It was 2011 by the time I had my marks. Well, I had passed. I, was, I hadn't, didn't have my marks yet, but... And of course, firms like Modernist, well, there were no firms like Modernist, but there were no, the firms, small boutique firms weren't hiring because we were, as you say, in the depths of a economic recession, especially hard hit by an RAA. Yep. Right. Advisory world got just crushed in 2008, 2009. A lot of firms were still so shell-shocked. They were not enthusiastically hiring yet in 2010 and into 2011. So I ended up being recruited by a big wirehouse, which again, I would say could be framed as a mistake, but also was such an amazing education. First of all, it was 1973 there, and they had not dealt with a lot of women, especially highly educated, creative women. So it was a funny experience to, be, to go into a space and realize that all the advisors, except for three were male and there were three women out of I think 45 advisors and huge huge difference all of the support staff though were women mm -hmm. there were no people of color except for a couple people who were 
basically behind closed doors. Again, this is how, you know, racism and sexism operates. It's not explicit. It's just how things happen to roll out. And then there was the, there's nobody who is out as queer. And I was like, this is statistically impossible <laughs> as I looked around. And that was actually really helpful for me because I grew up in, in cultures of creative, queer, strong women. I didn't, I didn't really believe that that world existed. And then I get, got to work in it for two and a half years, which was fascinating. <laughs> so what is that like? I mean, do you arrive and like, oh, okay, didn't realize the industry I was getting into, like, <laughs> never mind, just going to like wa- walk myself back over to my creative community. I mean, did you, did you think about just walking away and saying this isn't the right industry at all? Or did you look at this and say like, okay, I'm, I'm liking this. I'm just going to have to find a different place to do it in the future. I mean, how are you, how are you handling this as you got in and, and were seeing what you had gotten into? Yeah. I mean, what's funny is like, I made weird performance, feminist performance art. <laughs> so in some ways I started to treat my day job as a little bit of a performance art practice. Okay. And I felt a little bit like a spy because I was like, oh, this world, this thing I've heard about or read about, I'm actually experiencing what dominant culture looks like or dominant slash regressive culture looks like. And I knew that I would eventually have to leave because there not only was there a, a culture mismatch, uh, understatement of the year, but also a a business model mismatch. You know, I did my best to run that my practice within that firm fee only. And I was basically able to pull that off. And I had the benefit of really seeing how the business practices operated. And that was really helpful for me. I got to see, you know, some things I didn't love and did not want to reproduce as my career moved forward. But I also saw some great stuff like what does a really great tech stack look like? What does an operations process that is thorough and efficient look like? What does an investment committee do? <laughs> things like this that would have been hard to learn if I had started out doing an hourly or retainer-based practice. So I'm really grateful for learning those enterprise lessons, enterprise scale lessons, and then thinking, then pulling that forward. I've always thought about, okay, how could we do this more efficiently to scale, et cetera? So as you went in, like, were you still envisioning you're going to, you know, you might stay in the long run or was it a, as soon as you got in of like, all right, I'm going to do my time here, but I'm going to be going on to something else after this. I mean, just how did, how did you approach it? Cause as I, you know, a, I know there are advisors who've gone in and you know, decided relatively quickly, I, Wirehouse or whatever it is, like, oh, this is not the firm that I want to be at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some stay and some don't, and some really struggle with how long to stay. So, like, how did you approach it? Lawyers. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I definitely got some advice before I signed the documents because I really wanted to understand what they owned of me and what they didn't. And so that was on the front end and then same on the back end. So like you had a lawyer review the, what, like the employment, employment agreements, agreements yeah. going in. Mm-hmm. So what did you glean from that? Well, I learned that there's such a high rate of people failing out of those, of those programs that in some ways they're a little hard to enforce. And honestly, if I had stayed there much longer, I probably would have failed out economically just because of the way their compensation structures worked. And I wasn't willing to sell the things that would have produced the the incentives, et cetera, to make me a meaningful long-term employee of that organization. But I planned the whole thing and I had 
you know, really complex spreadsheets trying to figure out how I could, again, build the work I was doing and the the client building I was in the process of around the model I actually wanted to be in. So it was a lot of forward thinking, but I was there for a good two and a half years. And and again, I learned a lot and I'm really grateful for those those lessons. And then on the way out, I again had a lawyer who made sure that I was doing everything exactly the way I should. And so I guess even within that environment or, or especially in, within that environment, like what what was the business you were trying to build? Like it sounds like you had a pretty clear sense in your head of what you wanted it to look like up front. So what what did you want it to look like? Yeah. So fee only, of course. Well, at least for me, that was my that my minimum. Most of the decisions that we make I make and now we make in terms of the firm is how can we hold the highest standard in the way that we behave? And being fee only, getting my CFP marks in place, because I had to have I had to get experience to be able to have those marks. So that was really helpful. And financial planning and actually practicing financial planning. And in the middle of all that, I had the experience of being introduced to the money quotient tools. And I became a money quotient practitioner almost the minute I was in a conference where Amy Mullen was talking, who I know has been on your podcast and is brilliant, was talking. And I did one of the tools, the personal insights about money tool, which I remember how incredibly deeply that tool impacted me emotionally and in terms of clarity about my own behavior. And I thought, well, this is clearly what I need to be doing. And so I worked with the compliance department for like, I think it took me nine months to get the money quotient tools approved by compliance because they literally couldn't figure out why I wanted to know the questions that we were asking. Like, why do you want to know what people's relationship with money is? And I I remember having that moment of like, beat, 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 because we give advice about money. <laughs> you know? So like, what was the plan for what came next? Like, how did you, how did you exit out of that environment? Yeah, I got headhunted by a, a small firm in town. And a lot of my attraction there was the fact that I really needed to start charging flat fees for financial planning. I needed to be able to charge hourly or some kind of fee. And the structures that that wirehouse had in place at the time were really cumbersome and didn't really make sense and made it very hard to it was not a business model structured for that kind of compensation. And so that firm was open to doing that financial planning fees. And so I went to that firm and the my clients all followed me, which was very nice. And that was really the first space in which I, I was an independent contractor for the firm. So, you know, sort of multi-siloed advisor practice. And it was interesting to be able to have the opportunity to really craft my processes and to really ask for what I thought I was worth also, and to see if people would pay it. And what I found really quickly, all my growth in the you know year that I was at that firm was in financial planning fees. It wasn't really an AUM in large part because I think I was trying on how that model worked, how the compensation worked, how much time does it really take, et cetera, and really being able to dig very deep into the money quotient work without the cumbersome compliance processes. So I guess help me understand as you started doing this, like what is what were you charging? What were you doing for it? And where were the clients coming from? Like who were you who were you working with? I mean, just to survive 
two and a half years in the wirehouse environment is is quite a long in time in and of itself. It's like where where are the clients coming from? Yeah, and and what are you doing for them at this? Yeah. point? Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is that as I journeyed into my practice, I realized that being a good artist is basically the same thing as running a good practice. Being community-minded is really helpful. It's also how you get shows and press and all those things. Being oriented around volunteer work is an important way to show up in the community and also to get your name out there. So I really just leaned into the things I'd already been doing as as an artist mm. and you know I ran gallery underground galleries and stuff like that too. So I had this I had this background of community engagement. So I just really kept doing that work. And then so there was a lot of word of mouth and then my focus at that time, my niche if you will, was creative professionals. So you know, there aren't a lot of people that creative professionals want to talk to in the financial industry that they don't trust them for good reason. And their brand is usually terrible. So there's like a general lack of competition, I would say, certainly in the Portland market at that point. Thankfully, there's now some really fabulous businesses. It's so exciting to see how different things are than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's how I got clients. And then I honestly can't quite remember what I used to charge. I think it was like I don't think I had a minimum at first and I tried on a like $3,500 fee. And then I, because I've always done time tracking, I was quickly became aware of how much money I was losing. And then I think I went to 5,000 and then I set an AUM minimum because I realized there was some correlation between having built some assets and a desire to make the behavioral change that financial planning invites and by the time I'd basically proven to myself that people would pay for financial planning support, at that point, I realized that this firm, though lovely and great community impact, was not the place for me to stay and that I really had to start my own practice if I wanted, or my own firm, if I wanted to live my values and my vision as thoroughly as I thought was possible. I'm struck by how you, how you framed that, that like you were... You were proving to yourself that people would pay for this financial planning advice mm, mm. and financial planning support. That is that just that was part of the journey for you. Is like if I if I really charge these fees, do people really show up and pay them? Yeah, and this is a great example of a money story. I mean, as you know, as a woman and as a creative, I'm really not supposed to ask for what I'm worth. There are a lot of subconscious and very explicit messages that I've received. So I had to do that internal work to realize that here's the value of the work I do. Here's how much work I do. I know I, we do that now. We do that work very thoroughly. And I deserve to be paid what I'm worth. And what I'm worth is running a firm in which all of my employees are paid a living wage and then some have great health benefits, et cetera. And that's not cheap, <laughs> as well as being able to do the really time-intensive, accountability-focused kind of financial planning that I think is super fun. That really was the path to, to where we are now, where you know we have a million-dollar minimum, which quite honestly is still not enough to pay for the first couple of years of financial planning the way we do it. We do a flat fee of $17,500 if, if somebody doesn't have the assets, because we have a fair number of folks with high cash flow businesses, but they haven't built the assets yet. And it really took me getting clear about the fact that I am, the thing I do with my life, my vocation is 
worth money. <laughs> it is worth a reasonable amount of money. And I don't need to be, per the our earlier conversation, a starving artist in order to practice this vocation. So help me understand then what what came next. So it, it sounds like you were making the decision, I'm just going to have to launch my own firm and go my own direction on this. So what what was it that was bringing you to that conclusion? And then how did you go about trying to start something? Yeah. I mean, I think there was there was some... All throughout my practice up until that point, there was a explicit message that I could not charge realistic fees for the work that I wanted to do. And there was a supporting message that people don't want to talk about their feelings. They don't want to go into the depths. They don't want to do the work deeply, They yada, yada. And so I think your point is earlier is a good one. I had to prove to myself that those things weren't true. And once I had proven to myself that people did want to do the work, that they did want the support, that they were interested in a more meaningful and intentional relationship with their money, then I realized, well, nobody, I don't see anybody else doing this in Portland, Oregon. It looks like I'm kind of stuck. I've got to start my own practice, my own firm. It felt like it was a bit of a cliff. It was either start my own practice or, or go out of the business entirely because I felt too hemmed in by the limited horizons that I felt the industry was providing to me within the models that I could see available. And so I knew there was a better way. I knew we could do this. We could do this work with more intention. And it's one of the reasons why Kitsis and all the things that you've done in your your blog and, and all the work that y'all do is so helpful for me as a practitioner is that I get to see all the research and all the ideas and all this, this potential that we can do things in a better, more intentional, more thorough, more professional, you know, insert your your adjective. <laughs> so like, how did you go about it? I mean, just hadn't exactly lived the world of starting an RA from scratch and hanging your shingle. So how did you go about starting an RA from scratch and hanging your own shingle? <laughs> I mean, again, I'm an artist. So I, you know, how many times have I like decided to start a gallery in the middle? Of, you know, I used to run this little hilarious gallery out, out of a surplus warehouse I worked in. <laughs> It's just like, well, I guess we're going to start a gallery. And then you just figure out like, we need a space and we need lights and we need marketing and we need relationships and we need artists and we need Julio Gallo wine <laughs> for the opening. And we need, it's, same, it's the same practice of being an entrepreneur. It's just figuring out, okay, where are the practice areas that need to be considered? Who are the vendors I need to hire? It's, you know, giant spreadsheets, many, 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 many spreadsheets <laughs> trying to figure out whether and how I was going to pull this off. And I also was really driven, and this seems silly, but actually really is an important part of modernist, is I was very much driven by the brand. The fact that I could not bear other people's brands anymore because they felt so surface level and not really deep creative work. And that's so much of who I'm who I am as a human and as an intellectual. And so the desire to control my brand and my message became essential. So I actually started with hiring a creative brand agency to help me figure out what was the name going to be? And then what was the brand messaging? And I worked with a a vendor to help me come up with my manifesto for the firm. And it really, again, because we're planners, vision and values. There's a manifesto. Yes. Gotta love a manifesto. All right. How's the manifesto work? Oh, my manifesto. The manifesto is on our website. Highly recommend. I think we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link out to the manifesto. Yeah. And you know, the manifesto is so interesting. We spent 
I spent hours and hours and hours working on that damn manifesto. And now we use it at the beginning of every single innovation meeting that we have if we're working on a project for the firm, whether it's how we're running a new operation system or how we're going to put out our New Year's mailer. Grounding in who we intend to be is such an essential part of the way I want the company to run and how I want us to behave. And so once we had some of the what I will call brand elements, but to me are also more about the founding documents, the founding identity that we wanted to work from than it was, you know, finding an office and hiring an architect and and doing all of the things to, so that when I opened, I was really just moving my book from one firm to another and we just had a much prettier place to hang out together. <laughs> and I guess that was part of the question as well. So you you had some clients and revenue at this point that you were going to be able to bring with you that I guess the, the, the firm you were at at that point would allow you to take with you. Mm-hmm. It's, but I mean, one of the benefits of that model they were running of sort of siloed advisors was that I was an independent contractor with that firm. Okay. So it wasn't that different than having a third party asset manager and uh, having a compliance firm. And, you know, I just had more vendors to deal with. But those vendors were actually accountable to me instead of me being accountable to them in some odd way. So what was the base of clients by the time you you started? Just was there some critical mass level of like clients or revenue for, for you to decide like, yeah, I think I can go hang my shingle and do this? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely ran, as I say, a lot of spreadsheets trying to figure out what the answer to that is. But I think I started the firm with 10 million under management and then another like... 60,000 recurring and financial planning fees, something like that. I had one staff member full-time who came with me from the previous firm and was totally excited to help revolutionize the industry as we saw it at the moment. And then we, that's when we started having interns, et cetera, to help us get some of the, the work that needed doing done. So it was definitely very shoestring at the beginning. I had a loan from a family member, which would have, you know, would have been impossible without that support. Again, another benefit of of my racial identity and education background is having access to capital. And so when you got launched, was it just going right in with uh like and we're going to a million dollar minimum and 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 minimum fees of seventeen thousand five hundred? Like was that part of the original vision? Did it evolve to that over time? Yeah, it's definitely evolved. Once we adjust the the business model, it's hard. I sort of delete it from my brain a bit, but I think we had a 500 or 750 minimum. Can't quite remember which one. And I think our annual, like our fin- our minimum planning fee was 10 grand at the time, something like that. Probably 750 and 10 because we've always charged a little higher fee on the lower AUM amounts just because there's so much work for, for that money. And then... As we lived into the model fully in the ways like the financial planning and so on, like because we practice money quotient, we also practice one of their modules called First Step, which is a cash flow planning structure. Are you familiar with it? Yep. I am obsessed. <laughs> Maybe for people who, who don't know it well, can you kind of talk through the First Step? Yeah, I am so obsessed with First Step. Every single client we have uses it. It is a way of organizing one spending into three buckets. They call them static, control, and dynamic. I also explain them to clients as past 
agreements to pay bills, present lifestyle choices, and future spending for needs and wants. And it's a planning tool that's basically a glorified spreadsheet, but ultimately it drives a structuring of clients' checking and savings accounts to help automate transfers in their accounts to fund basically past bills, present spending, and future savings for wants and needs. It takes a lot of time to implement with clients, and it's a big part of our onboarding process. It usually takes us like three to four months to get it Im- implemented with a client. We do like bi-weekly phone calls to help them be an accountability partner to, to structure it and then implement it. But what's amazing is after that, it just sort of runs with small adjustments once or twice a year. And I can't think of any other cash flow planning tool or structure that has that little maintenance required. So can you just walk us through a little bit more? I mean, just like, how does this work? I mean, just like, what do you do or actually set up with clients? So the process looks like this. We onboard a new client. There's a five meeting process for onboarding. And then the, the first implementation after investments is cash flow. There's a one and a half hour cash flow planning meeting where we really dig into how much are you spending? What are your bills, et cetera, and help them start to populate the software. We don't populate it for them. We have them populate it because they really do need to have the agency and self-efficacy to own their cash flow as theirs. I think it's one of the ways to avoid a paternalistic approach to financial planning. And so we start to figure out what their spending is. And then over the next, as I say, bi-weekly calls for as long as it takes, we help them clarify and finalize their cash flow so that their income actually equals their expenses and savings. So this is just just helping them literally track and figure out where their money's going in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's really just a planning tool. It's not meant where you're looking back at the past to categorize a bunch of stuff. I honestly don't really care what's happened in the past when I'm interested in his behavior right now. So how many times do you get lunch? I mean, this is again, pre-pandemic kind of language, but how many times do you go to lunch? How many times do you go to coffee? When you go to coffee, how much money do you spend? When you go to the grocery store, how often do you go? How much do you spend when you go to the grocery store? Just backing into some of the behaviors, the financial behaviors that we engage in. So we create the plan and then we help them make a choice. Do Where do they want to bank? Do they want to stay where they are or do they want to consider a move? Once they choose the bank, then we help them clarify which accounts they need to open, what they're going to name the accounts. Then we help them set up automatic transfers for those accounts monthly to the savings accounts for the future, weekly for their lifestyle spending. And then bills just get paid out of the main account. And then we work on sustaining the process and see, and also observation. So the last phase is actually the most interesting phase. It's where people get to observe their behavior. I sort of think of first step as this sort of sneaky awareness and mindfulness tool because I get paid every week for my lifestyle spending. If I have a really hard day on a Tuesday at the office and I've been working, I had a 13 hour day and I'm exhausted and I have the desire to, I don't know, buy a lipstick or a new dress online, I don't get paid again until Thursday. So I may make that choice, but I'll be out of money <laughs> until Thursday. So it helps create a shorter time frame for me to observe my own behavior. I'm not saying that it's not okay for me to buy a dress or a lipstick or fancy dinner out, whatever the need is, but I'm more likely to be aware that I'm making this spending choice as a reaction to how I feel. And so that's the function of having these multiple buckets in the first place. Then you said, so like there's a main account where you pay your main 
ongoing bills, so mm-hmm. your mortgage, rent, mm-hmm. and so forth. You've got a second account that is for you know long-term savings, the retirements or weddings and so forth. And then there's a third account in the middle that is the the lifestyle account, the the ongoing ongoing spending that aren't the big normal standard monthly bills that come out of the main account. And the lifestyle account is where people do their ongoing lifestyle level of spending. But you you because you fund it weekly, essentially everybody gets gets themselves trained into lifestyle expenses, lifestyle spending on a weekly cycle. Mm-hmm, exactly. So you can't, you know, if somebody decides they really want to buy a CSA for half a cow, <laughs> you might not be able to pay for that out of your lifestyle spending every week, but you probably have some kind of like house savings account where you've got money set aside for those bigger irregular expenses. So it lets also create the sense of, so the only change I would make to your description there, Michael, is that the the future spending, the savings spending is multiple savings accounts and they all have a name. So it's house, car, charity, travel. If there's multiple people in the family, there's probably like a partner one, partner two, child account, might even be a pet account. <laughs> and so in the banking context, like literally you may have seven different bank accounts at the bank. Yeah, most people end up having three checking accounts, one for bills, one for lifestyle spending, and another for lifestyle spending if there's two partners in the relationship. And then savings accounts, I don't know, I think I have 10 savings accounts in my own personal. So help me put this in the overall context of just the services that the firm offers at this point, just when you've got this million dollar minimum or or I guess ultimately a $17,500 minimum planning fee like what are you doing for a minimum of $17,500 a year? I mean if I if I say hey Georgia, you know, firm sounds cool, need me some financial advice, uh, want to get started with you. Like what happens? How does this yeah. work? Yeah, it's a good question. So the onboarding process as I said is five five meetings. There's a welcome meeting which is here's our online file management tool and here's the information we need and yada yada. Out of curiosity, what is the online file management tool. Oh, we use Box. Tool of choice. Okay. Yeah. Works well. So, so, so meeting number one. Welcome. Is welcome. welcome. Mm -hmm. Like, here's how you, it sounds like this is sort of the, here's how you interact with us. So like, here's our file management, the email addresses, the people you contact to do things with the team. And is that a, well, I guess at least pre-pandemic, like, is that an in-person meeting? Is that a virtual meeting? That's a good question. We usually actually did that one virtually if it was appropriate. I think it, you know, it sometimes it flexes for the person. So I find that our older clients still much prefer to be in person, even if they're bringing their laptop to the office. So it really depends on the client's needs. Normally we do that one virtually because the person needs to be on their computer anyway, in order to access the links and portals and all that stuff that we're going to be reviewing. So that's usually about an hour and a half, sometimes a little shorter, depending on how much information we have in the beginning of the process. Then we do two retreats. And what they are is they're generally on Fridays from 11 to 4. There's two meetings in the morning. The first retreat is a goal discovery meeting. And they've got a fair amount of prep for that. And it's basically all, fun, all money quotient driven. They have a bunch of tools they need to fill out, each individually need to fill out. and we review those tools. We talk about the big picture. That's where basically all the financial planning goals are coming from. And then they have lunch. 
either we have it delivered or, you know, in the world in which we can do this again, they go to some lovely local restaurant and then come back. So they get a break from me really and the team (laughs) and get to look at something else. And then in the afternoon, we do data discovery, which is verifying the planning assumptions that we're moving, we're moving forward with. So you mentioned that you'd like to be able to retire at any time. I heard about three years. Is that right? When you'd like to be able to retire, oh, it's 10 years. Do you want to work a little bit? Sure. What does that look like? Tell me when, yada, yada. So just really digging in with open-ended, but somewhat specific questions about what are my planning assumptions that we're operating from. And then they go away for a month and they come back and we have another retreat that in the morning is a plan recommendations meeting in which we've built a narrative of where they want to be in the next five years based on the conversations we've had. So Ezra and Irma are happily living in their dream house and they feel like they've built a relationship that founded on open communication, their yada yada. So the language is in the past tense. So this 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 is this is the Georgia the creative writer exactly <laughs> coming coming back to us again. Okay. Okay. My, my very expensive creative writing education finally pays off. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Somewhere a college professor is so thrilled it has turned out this way. <laughs> exactly. But also there's a lot of research that Money Quotient has pulled forward that it is easier to implement our goals and values and vision if we have a story to tell ourselves. A story in which we've given ourselves permission to live a, a bigger, more a life that is more who we want to be as opposed to maybe what the world has told us we can be. So we have narrative and then we have basically a summary of the financial plan. Like most people do probably key values we've heard, transitions to address, concerns to address and goals to achieve. And then we break all those things down into who's going to do what, when we're going to do it, insurance, need, you know, the, the basics of planning. There's an interesting framework though. So uh, key values, transitions to address, concerns to address and goals we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically the framework for, we'll call it the the plan presentation. Yeah. And then there's about six more pages of detail on on those things. So cash flow planning, who is this going to include? What kind of results are we trying to achieve? What is the intent of of this process, basically? And then a timeline. And in that meeting, we say, okay, we're already clarifying our goals. We're already figuring out, we've, we're figuring out investment recommendations. We're figuring out X, Y, and Z. We're going to have a tax planning meeting in, in three months. So here's what we've got left. Insurance, estate, charity, often are three sort of neglected siblings <laughs> of the planning process. When do we want to do that? Given we're going to be doing these other things, 20 this year, later next this year, next year, when do you feel like you have the capacity as a client to take on that work with our support, of course, but you know, it takes clients do have to do, do some work to get, get things implemented. So yeah, that's what it looks like. And in there's also summaries of the scenarios that we've built for them, a recommended scenario based on what we heard and usually an alternative scenario or two based on what we think some of the primary levers of the financial plan are, whether it's retirement date, earnings, if they are going to sell a business or sell a piece of property or the big levers we have to pull in the plan. And so out of curiosity, are you, are you still using, I'll call it traditional financial planning software to do some of this analysis work? Yeah, we use Money Guide Pro and I've tried to present Money Guide Pro to clients, but honestly, it's so foreign to them and it's not that well designed for lay people. I find it better to, I do a lot of scribbling on paper <laughs> and uh, we also produce a summary on the 
in the financial planning document of the scenarios. Because I find that it just is really overwhelming to look at, at financial planning documents. We provide them to them in the follow-up. We give them a full like 130-page report if they are so interested. Some are, some don't care. Up to them. But the driver of the plan for you, I guess, is a, what, a, a half a dozen page document that you're producing yourself in Word. Yeah, basically. And so is that kind of the whole pro, like welcome meeting retreat number one, where we do goal discovery and data discovery with, you know, a break for lunch, second retreat where you're presenting the plan recommendations. Is there other stuff that comes in that meeting or is that just a whole half day of going through all the recommendations? Yeah, no, in the afternoon is when we also do investment recommendations. Usually depends on the client. You know, if they if it's somebody who is high cash flow but not a lot of assets, we may actually just dive right into cash flow planning at that point. It really depends on what's most on fire for the client. And so that's where we what the afternoon time is spent focused on with you know, all of our work is about how do we invite and include into the financial planning process? It's our first core value. And then we how do we invest in people in that in that invitation? So very education oriented, demystifying investing or financial planning for that matter, making sure that everybody actually understands what inflation is or compound growth, because sometimes depending on how we've been socialized, we may sort of nod along, but not really understand what it what it means as a as a conceptual framework in planning. So I'm just curious, like, wh- why these five-hour retreats? <laughs> just how the fact that you're doing them as five-hour meetings to calling them retreats? Like, where did that where did that come from? Where did that framework and approach come from? Yeah, a lot of our clients are in their 40s and 50s with very high-intensity businesses or careers and children. <laughs> so trying to get their attention is not super easy. And trying to get their focus is also not easy. And and having somebody fly in from another meeting, uh, literally or figuratively, like land in the meeting, we often start our meetings with a small meditation as well, just so people can arrive with us. And it became a way for especially couples, but individuals too, to really commit to making space for their own self-discovery. What do they really want? Because again, I find that, and I think this is my own identity, I find that it's really easy to parrot what we think we're supposed to say to a financial planner, but making, or any person in authority, but making the space to dig into what do I want and being able to verbalize that both for myself and then for my planner is a really, it, it needs some space and some ease. And so we tried doing them individually, but we couldn't get the depth or the focus that we wanted. Sometimes it doesn't work for everyone based on their 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 calendars, but I, I, I see it as an investment and in, often in couples too, because the money quotient work is so lovely. And for couples, they usually just never talked about this stuff in the same way that we are. And so it's an opportunity for building intimacy, communication skills. I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot of value in that investment. Interesting. So it, it is very conscious. Like it's, it's calling it a retreat because you're actually trying to put some busy business executive into a mindset of like, no, you're like, you're off from work today. Yeah, like totally. You're taking a personal retreat, mm-hmm. treat it that way, unplug, yep. be here, be present for this meeting. And you're doing it in a big old chunk like this because the reality is it's hard enough to get them away. Mm-hmm. You ain't getting them for two meetings over the span of a couple of weeks. So we're going to get them for one big old meeting 
all at once and just have them make that part of their mental commitment around the process. Right. And they get, you know, an hour, an hour and a half in the middle of the day. And pre-pandemic, we would send them to a lovely little bistro in town. We'd pick up the bill. They got to just like have a glass of wine or whatever was their jam and be able to just talk about what they were talking about, (laughs) you know, and say, oh, I noticed that. I never noticed that about you, or that's so interesting, or I actually don't agree with you about this thing, or, you know, they can have their own processing time is also, I think, an essential element. So I think one of the, some of the things we're pointing to here, Michael, is why I have, we have a high minimum. This is a very labor intensive process and it, you know, a new client costs us 60 to 80 hours in the first year. And I'm telling you, 17.5 is not covering that cost. <laughs> right. Year two, we're we're starting to make make our money back, and then on ongoing, we sort of think of it as a seasonal approach to planning. We do investment review in the springtime when the world is growing and things are blooming. It seems like an appropriate time. And then in the summer and early fall, we do tax planning with every client's CPA or tax advisor, which is a really fun and an essential meeting where I basically drive the agenda and ask a bunch of questions and try and get the CPA to be focused on the client's actual long-term goals, not the short-term tax bill. And then in this fall, we do a financial planning review because this is a time, a sort of natural time post-Labor Day to think about what has the year been like? What have we learned? And what do we want to take into the next annual cycle? And we aim to have that done, usually have those done by Thanksgiving if we can, depending on what happens in our calendar. And then is there a winter piece as well? Winter is sort of, usually there's a, it's end of year clean up for tax planning, preparing for the, for the next season. Or that's often when people's like, oh, they want to come back in for a cash flow review that's off cycle. A lot of people will want to do like a January cash flow meeting where they just look at their first step and we make adjustments together and think through priorities, stuff like that. Interesting. So it's kind of a structured service calendar approach, like investment review in the spring, tax review in the summer, financial planning review in the fall, clean up cash flow and whatever else in the winter and, and repeat again. But but as opposed to doing it quarterly or setting it months or whatever it is, just we do it with seasons. Yes. I, I you know, if I could make our whole calendar lunar, I would, <laughs> but I not quite there yet. <laughs> Interesting. So did we fully wrap up the initial process though? Like welcome meeting retreat number one with its goal discovery and data discovery retreat number two with its plan recommendations in the morning and investment recommendations in the afternoon. Is that usually the conclusion of the planning process at which point you're moving into this ongoing seasonal approach or were there actually other, other meetings in the upfront as well? Yeah, there's other meetings. So the next one normally is cash flow, And that's really, I don't know, as I said, like two to four months of an initial meeting and then the follow on calls until we get the cash flow implemented and tweaked till it's basically working without a lot of without much intervention which is which is essentially like having them start to track their spending get a handle on their spending structure their spending structure their spending get them trained into first step and see how they're doing for a while before you actually stamp them as done on their way which then gives us the very important information of are the assumptions of our financial plan actually legitimate? <laughs> because my joke is if you look at my driver's license, I would rather people think that I'm five foot five than five foot four. 
We do have a little tendency in the world to round a lot of things up. Exactly. Or down, depending or on down what we want. It's more <laughs> yes. Height rounds up, weight rounds down. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we need to, in my mind, the cash flow. I honestly don't know how to do financial planning without doing cash flow planning. Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of guesses. And if people are off by twenty or $40,000 a year, depending on what the nut spending is, that has a huge impact on their on the, a safe withdrawal rate, et cetera. So, you know, Marty Kurtz actually developed this structure and the planning center and Money Quotient own the property, the intellectual property together and run the property together. But he, from what I know, he started this because he was really struggling with how to talk about cash flow planning with his clients and understand how to have a shared language and structure that was replicable, but also solved these problems. It's like, where does the money go? And can we afford to do this thing that we think, I don't know, don't point at your partner or spouse and like complain about how they always want to spend money. Let's just actually find out if the plan says there's money for this, this spending. So and I guess worth reflecting, just you, you sort of mentioned there as a side, but like the cash flow stage is a multi-month stage just assumed going in to get a handle on what's going on with Yeah. It? I mean, we my, like we have a client right now who's an older couple and really cash flow planning is where in my mind where the good ideas and the macro and the 30,000 foot of financial planning gets real gets very real very fast because we start to realize what their overhead is. We get to realize that oh, there's actually debt problems that weren't really clear before or there is an a family member that we weren't really aware aware of they needed this much support. So it helps us reveal these oppor- these planning opportunities, but it also helps the client be the driver of the new behavior and the awareness. And so it is a multi-stage process. So in my my dream situation is that I get to show up with the clients in the way that they need us to show up in that moment. And then to finish the thought, insurance, estate planning, charitable giving all gets put into place. And also conversations with loved ones. Like, do we need to bring in a financial therapist for some intergenerational conversations that need to start happening? Those things tend to be, depending on the client, estate planning might come first before cash. I don't know. It really depends on their needs, but we want to make sure all that stuff gets dealt with in the first year, year and a half, two years, but we're always going to drive from what the client is interested in implementing. So I'm I'm just struck as you're describing that and just sort of worked in like and that insurance estate charitable by the time you're getting all that like end of year one maybe even getting into year two so just it may outright take clients more than a full year just to get through the whole process with you yeah and that's why i think the implementation phase which is basically investments cash flow insurance estate and charitable that and then family conversations those all happen at the at the rate that they want. So some people it's going to take 3 years to get through all that because they just either don't want to, they don't prioritize it. I need to help them understand why it's important, whatever. I'm not going to tell people what to do, but we need to make sure it gets done or at least if it doesn't they understand what the ramifications are if it's not done. And what happens is after the first year they get put into the seasonal cycle and these outstanding topics are part of our housekeeping section of our agenda where we say, okay, you said you were open to an introduction to this estate lawyer that we talked about. Would you like us to make that introduction now? Do you feel like you have the space to do that work? And they will say yes or no. I will just say whether I want to be in that meeting or not, depending on the complexity of the situation, et cetera. So I think what I've realized is I like helping people implement. 
I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. And I think it's where all the devil is literally in the details or the angels, depending on your perspective. So we've really built a process here that is very time intensive, but also means that the clients actually do what we think needs doing or or tell us that they don't want to do it. But we don't just hand them a thing to implement and say, you know, go with God. And and so now help me again to understand, like, where do clients come from that are buying this and paying a minimum of $17,500 a year? I mean, I don't think that's that much for the clients we work with. So where do those, but where do those people come from? And I get it. You know, if, if you're a hundred millionaire, it's like, Hey, we blow that in a weekend. <laughs> so like, sure. It's 17, five, but it's people a- pay for lawyers and accountants and architects. And, you know, I think the clients who we have want to hire a professional to both delegate to, as well as hold them accountable to the people they want to be, you know, like I hire a personal trainer and I'm sure I spend not quite that much, but half that with her because I want to be fit. And honestly, I'm not going to do it on my own. (laughs) So I think that's the kind of person who's really attracted to us. And they're the kind of people who want to have a more intentional relationship with their money. And they have the, they have the luxury of, of paying for that. But I will also say I look at our fees and I compare them to other firms that I know are doing intensive financial planning work and we're on par with them. So I don't know if it's, I think it's about the service model. I like that framing that just like clients who both want to delegate and want someone to hold them accountable to the person they want to be. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very loaded way to frame that, but I but like that's the point. Like that's a, that's a very powerful way to frame who, who seeks it out. Yeah. Well, and I think to, to, you know, spin the conversation a little bit, what I'm interested is in how, how are we doing the same kind of work as an industry? So for example, I'm a CFP and I own a B Corp, right? There's ways in which I'm actively asking for accountability as a company. I house my company in a lead certified building, which is an, a way to f- ensure that your building is ecologically sustainable. You know, I nourish my employees and my clients and myself with USDA organic food. I'm very interested in accountability. If I'm serious about my values, how do I hold myself to maintaining those values, but also not making it so laborious that I can't live up to that vision of myself, if that makes sense. And so that's where I feel like we're pivoting right now as a company is is how, how do we do this work for our clients Great. I feel like we've got that down. Now, how do we do this work as a company? And great. Now, how do we do this work as companies together? How do we hold ourselves accountable to engaging in a more intentional way of moving in the world? Is that interesting to you? You know, it is. I, I mean, it 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 strikes me not not unlike the nature of the services and the clients that you serve itself. You know, there there are, I think advisors who would be drawn to that mission and advisors who are like, yeah, you, you, you be you. I'm just going to like do my yeah. <laughs> thing over here and serve my clients and, 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 you know, doing whatever I'm doing this business for. I suppose that's always the challenge for the, the landscape and the system, the aggregate, right? Just human beings are wonderfully varied and come, mm-hmm. come at the world from all of their different perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, cool things happen when we find, alignment with groups of people that come together that all want the same thing and believe the same thing and you know, can make that happen as a as a group, as a team, as a community to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think as a, you know, for me, I'm in this work because 
I like to see that when I bring up the question of reparations in a tax planning meeting, when a client is selling a piece of real estate, that client thinks about why do I own this piece of real estate? Why do I have the capacity to own this piece of real estate? Now I'm going to sell this real estate and make a pile of money on it. And do my values politically or as an anti-racist mean that I would be interested in taking let's say 3% of that, in giving that to organizations that are impacting racial wealth inequality, specifically around homeownership. And I find that practicing work in that way, as a B Corp, it's kind of a question we're asking all the time, but asking that question of clients, I think is really interesting. It's why we are boldly progressive, and it's why I don't shy away from talking about politics, because money to me is deeply political. And this, I think, is the is the interesting place I want to hang out, because the firm is going to do fine. These businesses... RAAs are profitable generally. It's a good it's a good business to be in. Yeah. Recurring revenue is very nice. And I, I feel like we more than earn our fees, quite honestly. And so this question of how how are we building a world that we want that we want to have existing in the world? How do we build permission to both enjoy today but also invest in our common future is a question that I'm really interested in answering as a firm, but also as an industry, or at least whoever in the industry is interested in having that conversation. <laughs> and I guess I just got to ask, you don't, you don't get clients that are put off or, or thrown off when you take a, a conversation like, hey, you're selling uh, that piece of real estate. Have you considered contributing 3% back to an organization supporting anti-racism in the community? Just like that's a as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, like that, that can be a very loaded conversation for some people, for some clients. And, and so is that not a concern? That's just part of the conversation. If that's not your worldview, you're probably not a client in the first place. So it kind of works for who you're serving. Like, just, yeah, you- I think it's the latter. I mean, honestly, if that's not interesting, you probably wouldn't be down with the work we're doing. <laughs> But, you know, we explicitly talk about being anti-racist or attempting to be anti-racist because I think it is a lifelong practice. Being open to the many ways in which no matter what our hue or heritage or background we come from, we're, we're trying to take responsibility for the way we impact our neighbors, whoever they may be. And so, you know, I will ask that question specifically of people who I know are very engaged in anti-racism work, but I will approach that question maybe more less explicitly but a little more softly but but actually explicitly i will i will approach it and say you know i don't know if you saw that part of our newsletter where we were talking about the history of homeownership in america and redlining it's super interesting i you know you might be interested in learning more about that it's to me about opening a door not shaming somebody into making a choice right and i think that is a a nuanced skill certainly one that i'm not perfect at, but something I'm really trying to do because I do believe that real estate is a deeply problematic asset class, as is the stock market, as is tax policy. But, you know, for tax policy, what would it look like if we changed our language from tax burden to collective support? This is a question I keep asking. CPA sort of roll their eyes at me, but then I ask them, I'm like, well, how much would this client have been paying in taxes before a 2017's tax bill? It's a number. We know what that number is. I asked every CPA to answer that question in 2018, and every client was saving money, and a lot of those clients turned around and gave that money away because they just didn't know what the number was. And so I just think it's an opportunity to ask questions about how the structures we operate in 
align or do not align with what we value in the world? I guess I'm just wondering even a more fundamental level, just how do you reconcile that to an an industry that I think by and large trying to trains people like you don't have political conversations with clients like you're you know things you don't bring up in client meetings because you don't know where they're going to be and you don't want to get fired by pissing them off accidentally like you don't start talking religion you don't start talking politics is like sort of a maybe it's a spoken taboo but i think it's mostly an unspoken taboo in in our industry of just like there are places you don't take the conversations because they can be potential client landmines and just i'm i'm struck that you are so far at the other end of that <laughs> of that spectrum so i'm i'm just trying to r- reconcile that or or process that or even just think about like how to how do we handle this as advisors that you are comfortable taking a conversation at an intersection of money and politics that most of us feel like we're we're basically trained like you don't like not only do we not do that like you're not supposed to do that it's like here lies danger <laughs> Totally. Well, I think this comes back to money stories, right? The money story is that, hey, we're not really supposed to talk about money. Her story of money is that you don't talk about money. right? right? And that actually oddly drives the ways I've seen some people practice their work. I'm like, well, actually, you kind of have to talk about money in this work. (laughs) And to me, especially the money quotient work is about helping people come clearer, become clearer in themselves about building internal agency around how they use their money. And I'm really driven by that because I am a queer female identified creative person who was basically told I was not allowed to do any of those things. And I've seen it play out enough times with folks who are not supposed to have internal agency around their money that to me, it feels like I don't honestly know how to do this work without having these conversations about what do you want? Now, if somebody says to me that they want to, I don't know, I can't imagine something that I would just not be down. Well, they want to support some organization that is removing reproductive rights for women. I would be like, you know what? I like you. You're a nice person, but I really feel like you should find a firm that is going to be a better fit for you because I am never going to get down with that plan. That's my values. I can't live in dissonance with that. And so that is really the question to me, Michael, is how are the ways we're running our companies And the way we're talking to clients, impacting the stories that they themselves are telling themselves about who they can be in relationship to taxes. If we tell them that the best way to act in relationship to taxes is to pay as little as possible, what does that mean for my local schools? What does that mean for my local parks? And that's the question that I'm like, what could we do so that I'm not telling them what to think, but like, how do we, how do we just shift the conversation from having one specific way of being talked about to being a nuanced way that's specific to each person? So what surprised you the most in, in between, you know, I'm sure there was a, there was a vision in your head of how this was going to go when you started building the business, this direction a number of years ago, you've now lived it over the past six years of, of building it. So like, has it played out the way that you've expected? Has it been different? Yeah, I think it's different, clearly, because everything is changing. And because we, our third value is innovate and iterate. And I'm a big believer in their separate practices. <laughs> you innovate and then you iterate on an innovation. But they are practices and there are ways of, of moving in the world and moving in business. So that iteration to me is is very essential. If it wasn't different, I would be 
worried, I guess. But what I found is, you know, today is the anniversary of George Floyd's death. I will never practice this work in the same way again. I simply can't. Now, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for my client? Totally different things, but I'm, I have to move for my own emotional and moral certainty and well, self-kindness really. I really need to move from a place where I'm trying to understand the way that the small decisions I'm making add up with all the decisions people make that are similar to mine to create systemic problems. So that is much clearer. The anti-racist work is much more clearer. And that's my background too. You know, I am a Southern white woman. Those things are real and I'm highly educated. I have a lot of privilege and I'm trying to understand what that means and also how I can unwind, how I can unwind some of that and be generous with it. But again, clients don't need to do it exactly the way they do, but they probably want to be down with my, about me bringing up questions around collective support and nonprofits and like we're working with a, the Oregon Community Foundation to put out a, a report they have on the opportunity gap for kids in Oregon, which is primarily racially driven and about availability of infrastructure in neighborhoods. You know, it's fascinating to see what is actually driving the opportunity gap. And that can help clients then move into our next event, which is going to be a conversation about, is there a responsibility associated with wealth? And if yes, what could it be in the future? And that's a that's the kind of thing where I'm just like, I don't know what your answer is, but I'm really down with asking the question. So what was the low point for you on this journey? I think, you know, the pandemic's been really hard. I, I definitely got tired at the end of last year. I ended up hiring a couple executive coaches to just try and as I say, I like to I like to hire accountability partners. So I was like, let's let's see if we can launch me out of this hole. I think that's been a down point. I didn't expect business ownership to be quite so lonely. And so I very intentionally, about three or four years ago, started building a lot of community around myself who are of folks who are also entrepreneurs or leaders in some way, because it's us, it's it's a fun life, but it's lonely out there. So I think those are important. You know, I didn't have a great childhood. It was unstable and not super safe. So I spend a lot of my energy and money on therapy and couples therapy and personal training. And I do silent meditation retreats. And so I try to spend a lot of time on self-care, but you know, that doesn't mean there aren't days where I don't get out of bed and I just read fantasy novels all day. Oh, yeah, I'm curious to hear more about just what you did as, as you put to to build community around yourself because business ownership can be lonely. What did you do? Yeah, so you know, early on, I joined Entrepreneurs Organization, their accelerator program, and that was a great help. Is that like a local? It's actually an international program in Oregon. In Portland, we just happen to have a very active chapter. Oregon is a very, Portland specifically, but Oregon in general is a very small business oriented, generous kind of state and city. So it's kind of easy to build community here because everybody's sort of volunteering for everybody else's organizations and nonprofits and, and so on. And what was the, what was the program of the organization it's called? called? Entrepreneurs Organization. Okay. There's a global program that's for folks who have a million dollars in revenue or more. I'm not there yet. And then they have an accelerator program, which is for firm, for companies who have over $250,000 in revenue. And it's basically um, using scaling up. 
Uh, Vern Harnishes. Yes, exactly. Using that structure to learn about how do you run a business. You know, I sort of took what I needed and left the rest, but it was really fun to be in a business accelerator situation with folks who owned a HR company or a temp agency or an electrical company or things that were super different than an RIA. And that was very supportive of my development. So that was important. I started hiring coaches back when I was at the Wirehouse. So I've always had some kind of executive coach on and off. I have a new one who's amazing, who's really helping me move into this sort of the place I want to be in the company and where I want the company to go for the next 15 years. I would trust anyone you want to recommend that other people can try if they want to find a good executive coach? Yeah, I turned, if you're really into like, how do we disrupt the future? Her name is Gretchen Jones. Her company is Weird Specialty. She's lovely, super smart, super like geeky liberal arts person like I am. So we get to dig deep into what is the meaning of collectivism when we think about building team culture? (laughs) So stuff like that, really nerdy. And then I was asked to join a women's leadership group in town that goes rafting once a year. It's sort of aligned with a nonprofit, a river nonprofit here. And now there's like 34 of us of some of the top female CEOs in Oregon and leaders, elected officials and nonprofit leaders and EDs. And it's, I can't tell you how helpful it's been to just be around other people who are, who are leading, especially in the pandemic. I think, I think having people to share your experience and know that it's super normal to be overwhelmed or sad or scared or lonely, but also a badass and a pioneer, <laughs> you know, the, com- the complicated realities of being a human. So anything you wish you'd done differently? Like if you could go back and talk to you from six years ago when you were getting ready to go launch the firm, is there anything that you would tell yourself now in retrospect? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would have started with the leadership skills earlier. You know, I just thought I needed to be an entrepreneur and run a company. And then you realize like, oh, I've never been a boss before. Okay, now I'm a boss. <laughs> and oh, wait, I actually don't know how to do that. <laughs> and I have some instincts, but maybe they're not all that helpful. So I think the leadership piece is what I wish I'd invested a little more in, in the beginning. Any particular tools or resources? Like, is there at least something you found since then that was particularly helpful in figuring this stuff out? That's a great question. I think I like Brene Brown's work. I mean, she can be a little cliche ridden, but I do find those cliches helpful. So I like her Dare to Lead work. And there's a great workbook that I worked through with some previous employees that was really interesting because it's all tool-based and really helpful when we're working with clients within a team. I invested in HR and equity work maybe about three or four years ago. We have a firm that we work with as a vendor in that area. And we started sending all of our employees to an anti-racism training called Reframing Racism. And it's really fun to think about these systemic structures around race and then eventually, of course, gender and class and all these other things, because as a way to inform the work we do with clients. So I think I wish I'd woken up a little bit earlier around the anti-racism work, but it's a lifelong process to get to get on that path for me. So what advice would you give newer advisors looking to become a financial planner and join the industry now? Mm, Gosh, it's so different. I mean, I think there are places like my firm that you can work now that there just weren't as many smaller firms around 
that we're growing. I think, I think one thing is being really clear about what you want to be doing. If, if somebody wants to work, like if somebody wanted to work with me, they need to be super entrepreneurial and creative and collaborative and iterative. It's a really different kind of firm, right? Because we're still scaling and growing and very future oriented, right? While also being extremely detail oriented. Now, that's one thing, but if you have, you want like a 40 hour work week, week, work week, and not a lot of other commitments around the work, or you want a more explicit career path, then maybe a sort of mid-sized firm might be a better suited fit. So I don't know. I had, I tried on two other firms before I started my own. So I think there's a lot of value in trying to figure out what the institution can do to serve your needs and vice versa? Like what can you really bring your individual talents and wisdom to that seems like it's what they, what will be supportive of their growth? Well, and one of the themes we often talk about on the podcast is just that it, it, it takes most people three jobs before they find the fit or the structure they like. Like we, we do a first thing, wherever it is that whatever wonderfully random place we happen to enter the industry, we learn some things, we find some things we don't like. The second job is usually the polar opposite of the first. Like whatever I hate the most about the first job is what I make sure I'm not going to do in the second one. So we find like the opposite extreme, right? You went from, you know, large structured wirehouse to small, to small independent firm. (laughs) And, And then by the time you've seen the polar opposite extremes, by the third transition, you actually decide what you want it to be. And those are the ones I usually find that, that people end up sticking with for, for a very long time. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting observation. I've never thought of that, but I can definitely relate. <laughs> so what does the firm look like at this point? Just the, like the structure, the, the, how many clients you're serving? What does the team look like? Yeah, yeah. So we have 46 clients right now, households right now. There's me, I'm an executive assistant, director of operations slash associate financial planner who came on as a director of operations is now obsessed with financial planning and starting in her master's after a year and a half, which is awesome. Came from aerospace, which is interesting. Another associate financial planner. And then we have a part-time marketing person. And then of course we use Buckingham as our back office and, and investment management as well. So I sort of think of them as an extension of the, of the firm. So just from the structure and like all the financial planning's internal, all the investment mm-hmm. management's outsourced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we're growing. So we're going to be hiring for an operations, like a head of operations role so that my colleague can fully focus on her master's and associate work. And then we're looking for another client service specialist role to help us structure and sustain the planning that we're putting in place. So and I, I just have this feeling with our growth at this point that we're likely to keep adding a couple people every year or so just to keep up. And, you know, my my goal is to have as much support and creative thinkers around me to make my job fun. So we're probably running a less profitable business than other people firms would run, but it it's it's what I find fun and satisfying. And so what comes next for you? Well, my goal is by 2035, I'm working part-time and going back to art school. So it's building this next phase of the business so that it's not as reliant on me and that we've got, you know, G2 and G3 building up. I would like to build an evergreen company that can exist past me and into multiple generations. Um, As we know, that takes quite a bit of 
focus and planning on the front end. But I think that's a the primary focus. And then I'm really interested in how the work we would do with clients around understanding the structural and values-based decision-making, like tax policy or charitable giving or you know, where they bank ESG investing, all that good stuff. What does that mean for how we do financial planning as an industry? And then what does that mean for what kind of tax policy or other policy changes that we can advocate for as a company? So I think that that advocacy piece is going to be more and more important for me personally, for my driver. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast around success. and, And one of the themes that always comes up is just the Word success means very different things to different people. Uh, sometimes changes for us through stages of our lives. Mm. And so, you know, you're on the this wonderful trajectory for growing the successful business and building team and building it to to last. But how how do you define success for yourself at this point? Success for me looks like a a life of intentional relationships, meaningful work. I'm very focused on, uh, you know, moving through the world with awareness and causing less harm (laughs) as I do move through this world. I think kindness is a really, is a, if I can live a life of kindness and awareness, I, I will feel like that's a success. And of course I want to be financially stable as well, which I feel like I'm, I'm clearly on, I feel like I'm on that path, having building a company like this, but it's about, especially post pandemic, I realize how important relationships are time with others and experiences. And I'm even less interested in stuff than I even was before. (laughs) Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Georgia, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. And I'm so grateful for all the work that you and your team are doing in the industry. It's it's really a, a bright light on the horizon for, for me and has been through my whole career. So I'm very grateful for that. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>